Welcome to our pilot episode of What If? I'm your host, Elisa Anwar, and over the next six months, with the help of some experts, I'm going to be taking you all on a crash course on intergenerational fairness. From rising student debts, the housing crisis, to even discussing topics such as pensions and mental health in young people today. What if we actually listened to younger generations? On today's episode, I'm joined by Liz Emerson, Angus Hanton and Ashley Seagar, who are all co-founders of the Intergenerational Foundation. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. (laughs) (laughs) How much did you pay to go to university? Nothing. Uh, Angus, how much did you pay to go to Not only did I pay nothing, but if I if my father had been earning a little less, I would have had my a, a student grant to pay for my living costs. A grant, what, so they actually gave you money to go but, to university? Yeah, they would have given me money if, if, if yes. I'd needed it. So I, my mother cost. was a single parent, so I got everything paid, plus a grant to live off. Plus, what everyone's forgotten, in the summer you could sign on the dole as a student. And people did. And you'd get rent, yeah, and people did. Right, Elisa, so what we're now, what we're now, what you're now experiencing is is the golden oldies, remembering those 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 wonderful days of free education. So, as you can tell by my voice, I'm a little bit younger. But, than, but Liz, um, it, it was better than that, wasn't it? Because when you finished, employers were queuing up to employ you. Yes. So there was this so-called milk round, where employers would go round trying to sort of outbid each other, really to get hold of new graduates. When Angus and I went, obviously Liz being much younger, this doesn't apply, but when we went to university, I think 5%, 10% of school leavers went to university, something like that. Depends which universities you counted, but certainly about 10% in in tertiary education. And then it's up to 50 now or 40? Just under 50, yes. And the question then became, that's great, Uh, who's going to pay for it? Uh, Our... Uh, education, university education was paid for out of general taxation because it wasn't that big in the overall scheme of things. When you massively increase the number of school leavers going to university, there's a bill to be paid. And in the end, the decision was taken that it would be students who would pay for it through student loans because um, they would earn that back in their lifetimes uh, by through earning the the graduate premium as it's called they would earn more however what experience has shown is that with a huge increase in the number of people going to university that graduate premium has been eroded um you can have that argument all day long about who pays for tertiary education but the fact is that we boomers didn't and young people have to and yet you came out with jobs and yeah. i don't have a single friend who's really come out of university with a job Yeah, that may or may not depend. I mean, I graduated in 1984 in the middle of a big recession, so jobs were hard to come by. Mm. But the the general point is valid, that you you were a shoe-in for a decent decent job. I'm interested, a question for both of you. When you went to university... As the oldies. As the oldies, I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm just moving closer to Elisa. (laughs) When um, you both went to university... Did you just assume you'd come out with a job? Yes, essentially yes. You felt privileged uh, um, and you thought the world, or I thought anyway, the world would likely be my oyster because I was getting a top class education for nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. There was a sort of labour shortage 
in fact to some extent we were getting before covid we were getting to a situation where there was a labor shortage again in the uk for young so young people could get jobs but they were not nearly so well paid that was the problem that many of those jobs were minimum wage jobs so that we we haven't had a we were in a situation where there was a shortage of graduates and graduates were paid a premium um, whereas now there's a surplus of graduates and many people um, about half of people who graduate go to non-graduate jobs and even when you go on a couple of years still a third of them are working in non-graduate jobs. I think it's interesting that you both straight away just went yes because that's definitely not the answer anymore. No. Our generation go to university, we come out We've paid more money than I guess your generation have, and are we sure we're going to get a job? Maybe. And, and and that's a really interesting issue, isn't it? It's like you can't really blame the boomers for that. That's no, we're not blaming not. a generation for the globalisation of of the world, um, but it's the impact of changes in 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 the workforce and 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 um, in the jobs market that have fallen unfairly on younger generations. If there was ever a time when we needed an organisation like IF, it's now. And I think this summer has really shown the need for it. So we've got the A-level exam, sham, everything to do with COVID that's happening with students at the moment. These are all topics we're going to touch on in later episodes. Yes. Um, but I think the A-level exam fiasco it's quite important because I think it's the first time, I don't know about you three, but it's the first time that I've seen the government do a U-turn that quickly as a result of students. The, the reason for the government U-turn, in my opinion, is because parents as well as grandparents could see the destruction that was happening to their own younger generations and their family. And so the mass protests that came about forced the government to reconsider what it was doing. Now we want to take that energy that was created around A-levels and bring it to other areas of policy where we think younger generations are being let down. And now that COVID has hit, you know, we are deeply, deeply concerned about what the future is going to be for younger and future generations. It's possibly change on its way though. You've seen over the cost of Covid and the enormous run-up in the national debt that would be passed to future generations. You've seen Boris Johnson, for example, insisting on maintaining the triple lock on the state pension, which benefits primarily the old, the poor old particularly, but the old in general. Whereas the younger Rishi Sunak, who's only just passed 40 and is now Chancellor, he doesn't think it's odd at all to use future generations in almost everything he says, and he's now uh, in dispute with Johnson about how much of their election promises they keep and it's interesting to see the language of intergenerational fairness coming into the mainstream and we like to take credit for that. <laughs> I think it's nice that you have quite a positive outlook because I think I have noticed especially this summer on Twitter especially young people have this sort of newfound activism behind them and it's not just the A-level cohort it's almost like previous years of university who've sort of been hard done by, you know, by the strikes and everything, they're all coming together. Like Liz says, we don't really want to lose that activism and that energy that we have right now. Can I just, um, can I just add to something there? And I think it goes back to the Brexit referendum. It goes back to the EU referendum, sorry. 
And bear in mind that younger people overwhelmingly voted for Remain um, and older people tended to vote for Brexit. And then the 2017 general election was when there was this youth quake where younger people actually did come out en masse to vote. And that has helped, I think, to empower young people to think that their voice is heard. It was kind of like a protest vote. Oh, 100% it was. Yeah. But it's very confusing for young people, isn't it? Because on the one hand, they realise they've been ripped off by the older generation. And on the other hand, they care about them, their own grandparents. But also, they're very respectful to the older generation generally. What we're saying, really, as an organisation is... Absolutely, we should protect older, poorer people. Yes. But we also need to protect younger, poorer people. And the age alone can no longer be used as a proxy for need. Mm. Need should be based on what you don't have, irrespective of your age. But one of the challenges there is that the older generation have far more lobby groups acting for them. I mean, Age UK is one example, but there are plenty of other lobby groups are really focused on the interests of the old and the young have very few. So it, it, it's, it's a real challenge to see, to see how the young person's voice can be heard and I think they're just going to have to, to sort of move to the front of the queue and say, look guys, this just ain't fair. I think something that you all sort of touched upon there was it's not really one generation versus another generation. It's not old versus young. It's not we're just pioneering for young people or old people. It's this idea of intergenerational fairness, and you've all touched upon it, but given that it's such a central core ethos of your organisation, do you think you could expand for our listeners, I guess, what you mean specifically by intergenerational fairness? Who's going to give the Edmund Burke quote? <laughs> oh, I'll do it then. Okay, so Edmund Burke said back in the 1790s that the state, I think it goes, the state is a contract between, not only between those who are living and those who are dead, but also between those who are to come. And that is the central ethos of our work. So we want a equitable um, settlement between older generations, younger generations, and future generations. And that comes out of that philosophical root. And you can fast forward that to the 20th century, where philosophers started talking about distributed justice and contract theory. Um, but that is kind of the core of where our argument rests. So we're not just about protecting the interests of millennials, but younger people and people uh, as yet unborn. We have Millennials, we have Zanellials, we have Generation Alpha, I'm not sure who's next. I didn't even know Generation Alpha was a thing until I started looking at it. But you're mentioning all these different generations and I feel like I have massive trouble aligning with a specific generation because I fall on the cusp of being a very old Gen Z but a very, very young Millennial. Um, so do you think you could kind of define what we mean by generations? So you've got the silent generation who was born um, before World War Two, then you've got the baby boom generation, which sort of says what it it does what it says on the tin. Boomers. So because they were the generation that was born just after World War Two, around 1945 to around 1965, and there was an actual boom of babies each year for a number of years. Yes, a million a year. A million a million year extra. Then of course you get to Generation X 
which um, were between 65 and around 1980. Then the millennial generation, 1980s through to the early 2000s. Generation Z, early 2000s through, and we're just getting to the beginnings of the alpha generation. But here's the thing when you start looking at those generations. The bigger the cohort of babies born, weirdly the larger the state, the welfare state, because for all of those babies born at that period, you have to provide health visitors, you have to provide primary school places, you have to provide secondary school places. So there are real advantages that come from belonging to a much larger generation than a smaller generation. And that's what we are seeing in policy terms. And that's where the kind of conflict and the straining of the intergenerational com contract between the generations is starting to happen. Now, there's an elephant in the room in all of this, and that is the welcome, though sudden, rapid ageing of our population. So not only have we got that big rump of late middle-aged to early old age um, group of people, the baby boomers, they're all going to be living longer, much, much longer than previous generations, but our retirement and our pension system hadn't caught up with that. And so the big debate is who is going to pay for those people as they age? They're also much more likely to vote, and there are more of them to vote. So they use their political power very effectively. And it's not just voting power, they're more effective as lobbyists. They're more likely to be contemporaries of and know the policymakers, um, and they've got more time to do lobbying. So, so that they're, they're likely to be more effective than a, a, a millennial who might have two or three jobs and be preoccupied, understandably, with establishing their, their life and their family. I think the boomer generation, to go back to your original question, is the key one here, because they came out of the Second World War, a hugely traumatic experience for people, and actually not just in the Western world, but the whole world. So after that war, deprivation, destruction, death, came a new deal. The idea that everyone should have a completely new deal. The NHS was founded just after the war, for example. And those people, unwittingly, wrote themselves a hugely generous settlement in terms of university fees, free healthcare at the point of consumption, all of the rest of it. Guaranteed jobs, trades unions were strong. Pensions. Uh, pensions, everything else. They wrote themselves a, a fantastic deal that essentially was going to be honoured by future generations. What they couldn't see was that the this deal was going to be unaffordable as and when smaller generations came behind them, so there weren't enough money earners to pay the pensions and the healthcare and everything else, and the fact that they were all going to live much longer than they'd expected or any generation had previously. So in a way, if was born out of the fact of what the hell do you do about the boomers and their generous settlement that's unaffordable? How do you divide that up more fairly? I think it's reasonable to say. I think it's interesting because I never knew that the size of a cohort made an impact on, as you said before, the welfare state and how much money and resources they got from the government. I don't think that's something that's really well publicised at all because I don't think anyone from my generation would know that that's kind of the root cause of issues that we're having now and I think that's why going back in history it's so important to look at actually what happened 
rather than going, okay, well, the boomers had everything, we get nothing. So you talked about boomers as one generation. So what work does IF do to support young people? So young millennials and Gen Z right now? That's a really interesting question. I suppose what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide the, we're trying to provide robust evidence of how their prospects are being diminished um, because of policy. We're also trying to provide them with ammunition to go to policymakers and ask for a fairer deal. And I suppose we're also trying to get them to say enough. Enough is enough. Younger generations are really still smarting from the 2010 student deal and the tripling of tuition fees. That damaged their idea of if you protest enough and ask for your rights, something will change. And all they've seen is a tripling of tuition fees and a legacy that's going to follow them for the next 30 years. And I suppose my plea to young people is don't, don't just take it. You need to stand up and say enough. And if we can help younger generations do that, we will. I suppose there's also the question of whether they, how they do that. Certainly they need to assert themselves, but can they just do that through the ballot box? I mean, the senior uh, politics professor at um, Cambridge, David Runciman, his view is that democracy cannot deal with this problem. He says that older people will always vote in their own interests and they'll vote themselves benefits beyond what's affordable and the democratic system cannot cope, um, in which case young people have to decide, you know, how can they bring about change? And maybe older generations have to think, is this self-interested voting sustainable? But I think that's the nub of the problem, Angus. And isn't it interesting that actually a lot of our supporters aren't necessarily of the younger generation. No. A lot of our supporters are actually the parents and grandparents of young people who will use their votes to get a fairer settlement. So I think that's something positive. So how can young people get involved? We need young people to show older generations just how hard it is for them. And, you know, that is obviously a difficult thing to do. Not everybody wants to go out in, into the public world and say, poor me. And I think younger generations have been trained not to do that. So IF is approaching its 10 year anniversary next year, yes. isn't it? To add to the incredible work of IF, we're expanding our repertoire, I guess, and creating a podcast. So why did IF want to create a podcast? Can we say young people are so lazy they don't read anymore? So they <laughs> <laughs> It's true though, that young people, my daughters are massive consumers of um, podcasts. I'm less so, although I probably should be, because they're very good. Yeah, there are two questions wrapped up in Elise's question. Yeah. One is, what do we want to say in our podcasts? And the other is, strategically, why are we doing it? 
And you're answering the second one strategically why are you doing it? And I'm trying to answer the first one. Well, so I, that... I've got an answer to this. Yeah, okay. I actually think that when we're talking about intergenerational equality and intergenerational fairness, it's important that we don't talk on behalf of a generation. Yes. And I think that's why I've come in, really. That's how I look at my position in this organisation, is that I'm that... I'm that age demographic that needs to speak on behalf of my own age demographic. And I think it comes across as a lot more credible if it's coming from us, because we've actually got a voice. If you're speaking on behalf of us, you're still giving us a voice, but we're not using our voice ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what this podcast is really about. And I guess every single month is going to be a monthly podcast. Every episode is going to be dealing with another issue. We have things like student fees, mental health is a big one rent, housing, pensions, all of these big issues that kind of need dissecting and explaining, but from our perspective. And I guess that's, from my perspective, that's why So actually, it might be it. best if, if you answered the question. <laughs> well, I've gone ahead and done it, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something that we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics of discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook and even Instagram. See you next month for our first proper episode where I will be investigating the rise of student fees and debt. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.